Hello, friend and colleague. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music on our show today, episode 151. Contemporary voice specialist and creativity coach Jessica Baldwin is sharing the five most surprising things about popular musics for classical teachers. Shannon and I are continuing the series and our topic today is lazy students. Our good friend Takenya Battle is helping us to create our I am statements and yoga and meditation teacher Steve Farrell is helping us to understand why students may not be understanding our cues and instructions and what we can do about it. I have four fabulous and fun experts so you can level up in your teaching skills right here on the Full Voice Podcast. Jessica Baldwin. She is our first guest. Jessica was uh, on our podcast not too long ago, and we were talking about contemporary music styles. Now, Jessica brought this topic to the table, and I'm really excited. We're talking about the differences in contemporary music versus classical music. And so this next segment is going to be very helpful, especially for those of you who are classically trained, but you are moving into more popular musics and you're wanting to help your students with contemporary singing. You're going to find this so helpful. Without any further delay, here's Jessica. Welcome back to the Full Voice Podcast, Jessica Baldwin. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. I I am very excited. Uh, we have a fun, a fun and informative little segment, and um, this is this is a topic that you brought to the table, and I'm so I can't wait to dive into it. So we're talking about the five most surprising things about pop music and in brackets for classical teachers. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you that are new to the podcast, Jessica, her passion, her work is helping, uh, helping artists, helping teachers find their voice and to learn more about contemporary styles and not just how to sing them, but how to express them authentically. And uh, it's challenging it's challenging if you have gone through um, the funnel of a very specific style of music. It's difficult to, you know. I, I always I found like, you know, I pop my head out of the 
the the the hole and look around and realize I've missed out on so many things and then I have and then I have imposter syndrome and I want to just go and hide back in my hole yeah I hear that and I want to say that that would be true of literally anyone who does any kind of music music is massive massive it's impossible to know, to really know, I would say even like a half a percent of music. Sure, <laughs> sure. Really know it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I want to help people dissipate any shame they might have that they don't know enough music. So if you're a classically trained person, you went through a system that, that, had you dive into what is about 2% of what America listens to. And within that 2% is all sorts of other stuff, right? It's, it's, it, it's a, you've got music from all sorts of countries within Europe and now America um, and other countries that sort of branched off off of that Western European classical tree. And do you know, you've got, <laughs> all these different centuries that we study, different countries that we study, different, right? So within that 2%, it's still a big world and you can only know so much within that world. So if you popped your head up and you went, oh my gosh, look at that thing over there. That's fantastic. I want to learn more about that. It is never too late to do that and you should absolutely do it. And if you want to do it because you love it, please, please, please do it. No need to feel shame about it because, you know, the person who dedicated their lives to, uh, let's say, a certain subgenre of hip hop, right? They're, that's what they're doing and they're loving it and it's okay. That's what we do in music. We dive into what delights us. That's what we should be doing anyway, right. diving into what delights us. <laughs> so it's okay. So, so surprising thing number one to most classically trained people is when they realize just how big the music world is. If they've been in that classical world bubble, we talked about this a little bit last time, but that bubble can make us think that classical music is huge. It's quite small. It's, um, it, and because the music world is so big and because every genre and subgenre has its own culture, its own way of doing things, there is zero possible way you could begin to be an expert in all of those things and to bring that expertise to your students. You just can't. Also, unlike classical music, which yes, more classical music is being made, but most of what we studied was made a long time ago. So we tend to think of that as being passing down information, passing down performance practices. But in popular music, most of the music that your students are going to do has not been made yet. They're going to be the ones making it. You can't pass that down. So you're going to be in a facilitator role as opposed to a um, teacher role in the way that we think of teacher. And that is a very freeing thing to let yourself know. It's way too big of a world for you to pass down information. You're going to facilitate their self-learning. You're going to facilitate their self-motivation. You're going to facilitate them building the skills they need to create the music that they want to create. Now, if you can refer out to someone else 
who's doing the music your student wants to do, refer out, like just refer out. If you can't, there's no one who can take that student on, you know, you don't know of anyone yet, you know, just do your best, admit what you don't know <laughs> and learn together with the student. They will actually appreciate that very much as opposed to you trying to pretend that you know everything. Wow, that really, for a lot of teachers, that's a hard pill to swallow. It, it, for some, it might feel like you're kind of letting letting go of the control and that that's that step away from the master apprentice approach, right? Yeah, yep, yeah. And you know, you'll, you'll find, you'll probably find some music that you love, you know, do your own harm, homework and, and start participating in the actual music community of different popular musics that you love as much as possible. Um, and if you're, <clears throat> if your student really wants to participate in a certain kind of music, the more you can learn about it on their behalf, please do. You know, listening, watching concerts, going to concerts, learn more about that so that you can help them. But learn with them. They should be doing that same learning too. One of the things that I did when the pandemic hit and we all went online and, you know, it was very new, very stressful and a lot of fears and worries um, is the warm up part of my lesson just turned into, I want you to bring me a song that you're listening to that you just want to sing. And you can even sing along with the track. And I, I, and I, I just said, look, I'm not going to know the song, but let's talk about it. Let, tell me what you like about it. I'll tell you what I like about it. And that was probably one of the reasons that I didn't lose anybody like I didn't know, none of my students dropped out. And I think that had a lot to do with it, that they could actually bring music that was, they were, they whether it was expressing a feeling that they were feeling, or they were just excited to share some, uh, some music that made them feel, you know, safe or strong or whatever. And, and man, I, I got, some new music that I, I had never experienced before, some new voices. And it was a fabulous, it was a fabulous experience. And it's something that I've continued because, um, you know, like we can still work on technique when you're singing a song that I don't know. I just wanted to share that because it was powerful. It was so powerful. It is so powerful. Our students have so much to, to share with us, to open our worlds. We can't, there's no, you can't stay ahead of knowing all the music. You can't even begin. Mm -mm. Even if you follow like the billboard charts, <laughs> the billboard charts are still a teeny tiny part of the music that's being made. The vast majority of the people you're going to work with are not going to be billboard charting people. They're going to be people like me who are indie artists who go to venues all over the place and perform and will never on a billboard and we are making so much music and there is tons of music out there under that indie umbrella um, and community um, you know finding the artists in the city where you live who are doing the music that they're doing getting to know what they're doing so you can help your students reach out in that way too and move past if they're thinking that you know radio is the final place to discover music right just how big it is so number two surprising thing you're not the boss of them <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in popular musics, individualism, breaking the mold, mm. self-expression, mm -hmm. experimentation, 
and risk-taking are guiding principles. The individual is the most important thing, and they are supposed to be something that hasn't happened before. Again, you can't, you don't know what they're going to be because it hasn't happened yet. Right? You can't tell them how to be because you don't know. <laughs> okay? And honestly, this is true of every new generation of art creators in general and every medium. Honestly, we're a little the odd man out in the classical music world to think of art any other way. So because this is the way it is, the teacher is rarely passing down knowledge. We will have, we will have technical knowledge to pass down about the voice. We will have things to pass down about music theory and things like that, right? But different genres talk about music theory in different ways even. So we may not fully know how a particular genre that a student wants to do is even going to talk about music theory fully. But what you're trying to do is to facilitate self-generation. You're trying to facilitate that young musician's ability to be their own guru, to be their own teacher, to be their own um, guide in terms of where they're going, what they want to do, being able to feel comfortable taking risks and trusting their gut. Because when a whole bunch of people are trying to tell them who they should be all the time, which is going to happen constantly, a true artist has to be able to say, no, this is who I am and this is where I'm going and this is what I'm doing. I will take your wisdom into account, but I am ultimately going to make the decision about my path because I'm the only one who knows what that's supposed to be. So again, you're not the boss. So informal learning is a term that is used in the popular music education world. If you haven't um, been aware that the world exists, it's been around for decades, tons of research, tons of books. Lucy Green is an innovator who did studies on the concept of informal learning. I highly recommend any of her work. Um, she was actually the keynote speaker at this year's Association for Popular Music Education Conference, APME. I would recommend joining that. Um, and read anything you can about that world. But informal learning is how they talk about this, where we're not passing down information. It's not master apprentice. You're a facilitator coach instead. So that coaching world has a lot to teach us in general about being a neutral person where the client is central and the coach is keeping their preferences and their beliefs in check. And whether you personally like a Students genre or style is not relevant. And if you can't look past your own aesthetic preferences, you have to send them to someone who can work with them with the aesthetic preferences they have. If you can't respect that person's aesthetic preferences, you're probably not the right teacher for them and need to send them to someone else. Truth bomb right there. <laughs> That's beautiful. Eee. I love it. No, I think, but, and, and, I'm just, I just want to chime in. That's probably going to make you feel better too, right? Like if you just aren't able to, to appreciate anything about the music or the, or the sounds or the, the, the voice that they are bringing to you, why would you, why would you keep them there? Why would you do that to you and your student? Just not fair. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, that other, the final piece of that not being the boss is that coaching in the coaching world, we have to release this egotistical need to be the one who knows and helps. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, 
because the client will often not know where they're going next. And it's in those moments when we most want to be helpful and knowledgeable that we have to shut up and let them try different options for themselves and find their own solutions. Mm. We provide solutions and options as rarely as possible. Wow. So that they can come up with their own solutions, their own options. And that is a very different way to think and be than what we learned in most of our being taught situations, you know, when we were students. Okay, as a parent, as a parent, I struggle with that. I want to fix all the problems. I want, you know, and, and, I, I struggle with my son because I obviously I want him to learn the lesson it to be you know helpful but sometimes I just want to fix the problem and move on and I I catch myself all the time all the time all the time he needs to figure it out and he needs to have his own experience about it and I I really struggle with that it's hard because it's easier it it's is. easier in the moment mm-hmm. it's easier in the short term to provide the solution. But in the long term for that client, that's actually harder for them because now we've robbed them of the opportunity to create their own solution when we're not around. Right. Because we can't be there forever. Right. Oh, so good. Yeah. It's a tough thing to do. All right. Keep going. Um, Okay. So number three, it is not all about the voice, not even close. So voice teachers, we really hyper-focus on the voice itself, but singing is only one part of this music for these performers. The persona, the message, the style, the community, the person's story, these are paramount. These are the most important things. And this is part of why I started diving so heavily into creativity coaching, because like, man, that's where the meat is. Um, This is not about how beautifully this person can sing. And... And, you know, you can find plenty of examples of famous people who don't sing that well, but people love, right? Because of their message, their style, the community within which the music exists. And they need so many other skills. They need songwriting skills, production skills, how to lead a band, how to play some kind of instrument, usually piano or guitar. They need to know how to run live audio, studio audio. They need to know how to be able to play and sing by ear. They need entrepreneurship skills, marketing skills. So there's a lot that they need to know. And if you are interested in any of those things, gain those skills, incorporate that into your lessons. If that's not something you can or want to do, then make sure you're letting them know that those are things they need to have and send them to other people. Number four, rhythm is key. Moving your body to the rhythm and feel of the music is basically universal. Here's another area where classical music and to some degree musical theater can be a little out of that universal thing where we were supposed to sort of pretend we don't actually hear music happening (laughs) and to sing in a way where our body isn't like feeling the beat necessarily. We're sort of trying to live above the music in a way, which is its own really cool thing. But a lot of this music, you have to literally feel the beat in your body and you'd probably be surprised. And this is what so many of these people find surprising. I've worked with fabulous singers, multi-degreed singers who legitimately struggle with stomping their heel into the ground with the beat for an entire song, let alone like snapping or slapping the thigh on two and four as they do that. Mm -hmm. It's hard. We've had rhythmic feel sort of programmed out of us. Yeah. 
I in a I'm, lot of our singing situations. I'm relieving many of my my lessons because I do a lot of jazz and I help a lot of singers with jazz. And that is one of the first things I make them do is just tap to the beat. And then can you snap or tap on two and four and how they struggle so yeah. hard. Yeah. Wow. It's Great interesting point. that we don't, <laughs> that we feel like that's not supposed to happen or program that out. Again, I mean, it's, it's beautiful music. I'm, I'm never going to poo-poo on classical music. It's gorgeous. It's its own thing. Mm-hmm. But if you want to teach popular music, what's surprising to most classical singers is when it's time to actually feel rhythm in their body, they think they will be able to do that easily. And when it's actually time to do it, how difficult it actually is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that rhythmic feel is actually the foundation of expression. It's the precursor to expression in the way we think of it in classical and musical theater stuff. The feel of the beat is going to be sort of like a springboard for what you do expressively. You can't get rid of it and then be expressive. You have to find a way to work it into the expression. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. Um, and then number five, song choices <clears throat> don't have to be hard. <laughs> um, I The most common question, I have a Facebook group, um, popular and commercial music voice teachers. The most common question in the group is, what song should I pick for my student? Here's the answer. Don't. Let them bring in the songs they want to sing. You can work with so much once they bring in that song, but you will never really know who they are. You won't be letting them teach you who they are if you don't let them bring in their own music. You won't be letting them teach you, know, teach you who they want to be. You can change keys, you can change words, you can change tempos, you can just work on one section and save another one for later. You, there's so much you can do, but you don't have to completely throw out songs because it's not the perfect song. That doesn't exist. Let them teach you what they need to teach you with their song choices. There is no canon of music in these musics beyond what is beyond like respecting the elders of each genre culture. Mm-hmm. And even then the next generation is expected to do their own thing. Right. You respect the elders and then you be your own person. Mm. Nice. You don't sing the things like the elders did. Right. <laughs> when you go out and be your own artist, right? You might at home when you mm-hmm. do imitation stuff. Mm-hmm. And that there's two reasons you do a song, and I don't recommend doing both at the same time. One is to add something to your own palette. So you do this by imitating other people and maybe making certain sections of a song into a technical exercise. Okay. So you do imitation. This is the art process in every single art form. Mm-hmm. Imitation is how we learn how to talk. Mm-hmm. It's how we learn how to sing. It's how we learn how to paint. It's how we learn how to dance. You imitate. And then over time, you blend together all the different things you're imitating, and that starts to become who you are as an artist. And art is basically just collage with previously untried combos of style and content and setting. So imitation gives you the stuff you're going to collage into who you're going to be later on. Um, And then the second reason you do a song is to use the palette you've built so far to be who you're going to be. 
where the artist is the focus. Even if you're doing other people's music, you make yourself the focus. You change the music to make yourself the focus. Change whatever you need to change about it so that it sounds like you and that you're the part that shines through. Oh, so beautiful. This is so helpful, Jessica. I cannot thank you enough for this information. And there's so many teachers out there that are are changing their the language that they use and the approach that they use to give their students a space to just discover who they are. And I, I call it making peace with the voice, you know, just just being able to get rid of those blocks and discover. And this is so helpful. We are going to have you back because this is an important topic in our industry right now. And where can my listeners find and follow you? You can find me at truecolorsvoiceandartist.com. And you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram under True Colors Voice and Artist. And I have another website just for teachers called singinginpopularmusics.com with blogs by and for voice teachers. So helpful. I'm, I look forward to talking to you again. Have a fabulous day. Thank you so much. If you are interested in learning more about artist coaching, I want you to visit Jessica's website, truecolorsvoiceandartist.com. Coming up in the new year in 2022, she has a a live uh, course for teachers. It's called Artist Coaching for Voice Teachers. And there's more information about that on her website. But do hurry because spaces are limited and it's going to close soon. Returning to the podcast and continuing with our series on redefining what happens in our voice studios, Shannon Coates returns to the podcast and today our topic is lazy students. Welcome back to the Full Voice Podcast, my friend, my colleague, uh, my pedagogy expert and my go-to person when I have challenging students that I need help with. Dr. Shannon Coates, how are you? I am well, thanks. I am well. Looking forward to this conversation. I'm so excited. So we've been doing this series, Debunking the Myths in Our Voice Pedagogy Universe, and this has been so helpful, really. we There are a lot of a lot of biases and things that we've done, maybe because our teachers did it that way and that was our experience. And we really need to always be challenging ourselves. And anytime we're stuck, you know, when we really have an absolute, this is the way things have to be, we have to really ask ourselves, is it, is it really the way it has to be? I love, I love this. And I want to, and I just want to shout out to all my listeners, this, you know, these, these can be, I would say triggering conversations sometimes because it might rub up against some of your, your feelings about how you teach or how you were taught. And I, and I just want to say that, uh, uh, it does take, it does take courage to reflect inward and and make big changes. So if you're out there thinking about these things, you know, just uh, keep in mind that it is it is it does take courage to change those habits and those opinions, and you can do it. <laughs> yes, you can't see me, but I'm nodding like very vigorously. 
and thumbs upping <laughs> very vigorously. <laughs> now, I, I'm really, uh, I really love this topic that we're talking about. We're talking about, and then this is a horrible term. I hate to say it, but, mm. and I'm doing air quotes, big, big air quotes, but lazy students, students mm. that just don't seem to have the productivity or the discipline or the energy and they can be so frustrating in our studios. Mm. So help us to understand a little bit about what might be going on. Yeah, I love that. Um, and we, we do see this often on the forums too, right? We were talking about that earlier. We see this often on the forums where someone will say like, I can't seem to motivate this student or the student doesn't seem to be motivated. Like, what do you do for a lazy student, right? The uh, folks will, will say that um, and ask questions. And again, as we've talked about before, this is sort of like best of intentions, right? I, I, I can see that the student is not doing what I think is best, and so then I, you know, I want to, in my role as their teacher, instructor, I want to uh, help this student to do better. And I've got all the air quotes around all of these words, but <laughs> I want to help this student. And so my best of intentions are like, I'm going to reach out to other teachers and, and ask how are other people working with, quote, lazy students? How are we motivating? How are you motivating them? How are you engaging them? Um, and I want you just off the top, I want to say that um, if you're interested in this topic, um, a challenging read or something that you might be interested in reading is Dr. Devin Price's book called Laziness Does Not Exist. And there are a couple of articles that uh, they have up. Um, and if you Google that, you will find some articles as well. So if you don't get all the way to the book, you can also take a look at some of the articles too. Um, so let's unpack a couple of things here. Let's, let's unpack, first of all, from the perspective of the voice teacher, when we're talking about or when we perceive that a student is, quote, lazy, and we perceive that they're not doing what we think they should be doing, that is our perception, right? So we have, we come into the studio with this absolute that students should practice. We we talked about this <laughs> recently. Um, so that students should practice. Um, students should be uh, doing their homework. Students should be, um, you know, working on the th this whatever aspect of the singing that they're supposed to be working on. And students should be, um, you know, engaging and and. If a student isn't motivated or doesn't appear to be motivated, then there must be something, there must be a deficit there. There must be something wrong with the student, right? There must be something wrong. Or we turn it to ourselves, uh, sorry, and, and that can be something that gets us to feeling like this is going to reflect poorly on us or I'm not doing my best for this student because, I, you know, I can't help them to get motivated you know, there's all, again, there's all of those things tied up in this around our feelings of who we are as teachers and what we're doing as teachers, right? So all of that kind of, it gets tied into this as well around our intentions and all of that. So we want to kind of um, start to reframe this. So whenever we feel that temptation to observe that a student is lazy or 
unmotivated or disengaged or all of those things, um, we want to start to reframe that a little bit for ourselves and start to ask ourselves questions like, what are, what are my expectations around what this student should be doing? And are those expectations something that I have just taken on because it's an absolute that was passed down from my voice teachers or from my experience taking voice lessons or just from my experience in the academic system, right? Like just going to school, like, you know, all of these expectations around homework and, you know, uh, and doing all of these things outside of the, the lessons. Does that, is that what is affecting my perception of this student? So we're starting to start to, again, like you said, this could be a little bit of, you know, it can be a little bit of a hard conversation um, because we're, we're kind of taking apart some of our preconceived ideas, our beliefs, our, the things that we, we quote, know to be true, those things that we have taken um, with us and start to kind of question those things and then start to question, why is this important to me? Why is this so important to me? And if the, if it, if, the answer is, well, because this is the way that they're supposed to do it, or this is what's going to be best for them, or this is what's going to be um, make them the most successful, then, as we have talked about in previous episodes as well, then maybe it's time to reframe success. Maybe it's time to reframe, um, again, some of our expectations around what is best for students. Maybe it's time to reframe some of our teaching and assessment ideas. Those, those things can all take a reframe. And that's from our point of view in terms of our expectations of students, right? So that's, that's the one part in terms of expectations. The other part is to start to reframe how we communicate what expectations are and also how we communicate um, uh, uh, or how we facilitate being able to um, do the things that we think are important. So if we, the, the, one of the things that we want to try to reframe a little bit is what is success? And what does success mean for this specific student? So if success means, for this specific student, if success means that they want to, um, I don't know, they want to sing at the recital, I don't know, or they want to learn a specific song, or they want to learn a specific technical skill, maybe. Um, what what does the success mean for them? Or they just want to be more comfortable using their voice, or they want to audition for, uh, you know, a show in the school, or whatever. First of all, let's find out what success means for this student. What is their why? Why are they taking voice lessons? And then, we can start to figure out what does that, what are the steps, the actual steps to get there for that student. And then we can start to help them to have, to put those steps in place. If a student wants to learn how to be, I don't know, how to use their voice um, in a specific way, a certain technical skill, if they want to do an exam, if they want to you know, whatever all of these whys are, I mean, the why is never that I want to do an exam or I, I want to perform, right? The why is always that I want to use my voice in a specific way. I want to be heard in a specific way. I want to be perceived in a specific way, right? The why is always much, much deeper than like, I want to audition for this show, right? That's, the why is always much deeper than that. But if we can find that why and get to 
what does success mean for this student rather than what do I think success is, we start to then figure out what is going to be the motivating, uh, sorry, what are going to be the steps to get to that success? And then what are going to be the things that actually motivate this student to complete those steps? If they are looking to, let's do a specific example. If they are looking to, let's say they're learn, looking to learn how to belt. Let's say that. So that's what they want to do. That is success for them. And they can learn how to belt or and they want to uh, apply that belt to um, maybe a specific role or they want to put it in a song or uh, maybe a specific song. So the success to get to that role or to get to that song is not necessarily dependent on them practicing every single day, as we've talked about before. It's not necessarily dependent on them doing the very specific things that I I was uh, I don't want to say forced <laughs> that I that I was supposed to do right or that I my teachers told me I had to do in order to be successful. It's not necessarily dependent on those things. It can be dependent on so many other things. So once I find out what those things are, then I can start to facilitate them to be able to do those things in a way that they feel motivated by. If someone loves baseball, for example, mm. <laughs> I don't know anyone like that. If someone is obsessed with baseball, for example, and they're taking singing lessons, and the <laughs> and wish. and the the definition of success for that person is that they want to, um, I don't know, do a grade six exam. I don't know. Um, <laughs> making stuff up, but say that's what they, where the, their goal is. They want to do a grade six exam. So everything can come back to baseball, right? We can make everything come back to relating to baseball. And then we can, and we can also reframe um, what, as we've talked about in a previous um, session or maybe an, uh, an upcoming session, <laughs> depending on how you, how you uh, put them together, what practice looks like, what the goals look like, we can reframe all of these around baseball. So stats, baseball stats, I can sing those baseball stats up and down my scales for my grade <laughs> six exam. I can sing names of baseball players. I'm just throwing stuff out there. I don't really know much about baseball, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I do well. I can do uh, the last, you know, <laughs> the team names of the last whoever won the it's not the Stanley Cup, is it? No. <laughs> whatever, one, whatever the, the thing World that you Series. win in baseball is. Yeah. The World Series. That Yes, that thing. So that can be part of like, that can be part of the way that I practice. Or I can have, I can sing this next song as if I am harder. <laughs> yeah. No, I, right? that, that makes sense. You know, I wanted to share something. You've, I had, I, I work with um, advocational adults and mm -hmm. uh, learning their whys, uh, they're all different. They're all different. You know, some, some of my adult advocational students just need a safe space, a supported space to sing 
and they need the feedback to build their confidence. They're not practicing at home um, because that's not that's it's not helpful for them they're it's just they don't get the feedback that they want and they don't feel secure singing without that feedback right now so like practicing is non-existent but they come in every week and that's it's the lesson that is what they're looking for and then I have other students who are you know auditioning for you know an art school right so there's there's different every single student is different and and uh it's interesting i i love what you said about finding out the whys and yeah recognizing that everybody we have to come at it with different motivations and different things Mm -hmm. and it's not about us that's the hardest part it's not about our definition of success right? right yes the and i mean i've i've talked about this student before i had one student who came uh for lessons and uh they did a you know like a six week lesson pack um like i do a six week um trial i call it a trial but it's a six week um experience basically um so they know what they're getting themselves into and i do too and they were I mean, if I didn't know better, I would have thought, okay, this is an obstinate, disengaged, um, uh, what's that called? Defiant student, like with their hands crossed, just like defiant student, very nice person outside of the lessons. They were like 13 or 14 at the time. And like I couldn't, and like, I'm a really nice person <laughs> and I can usually win you over, right? Like it's very rare that we're in a lesson situation and you're not having fun and you're not engaged, right? Like I can usually win you over. And I just couldn't do this with this student. And coming back to the why, that student did not want to take voice lessons. Their mother wanted to take voice lessons, And so their mother thought they were doing an amazing thing for their kid by signing them up for voice lessons. But that student did not want voice lessons. They did not. So at the end of the six-week trial, I mean, you know, the mother was super apologetic. I'm really sorry. Like, she just doesn't want to, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I know she doesn't want to. (laughs) I am 100%. I know she doesn't want to. Her why was no. (laughs) Yeah, there was no why. There was no why. And Mm -hmm. that came through very clearly in her, quote, behavior, which I could have interpreted as someone who was a, you know, a poorly behaved kid. They are not a poorly behaved kid. They were literally just did not want to be there and were being forced to be there. So like forced to try it. Right. So all of those, I mean, we're talking specifically about quote, laziness, but all of those behaviors that we perceive as being, quote, bad behaviors, they're they're coming from a specific place. And if we can find that why for voice lessons, we often can figure out how to, to work with that student in a way that that um, where we acknowledge that the behavior is not because they're a bad person, you know, where we acknowledge that the behavior is and is because something isn't working. What an interesting conversation it would be to have, the, like, with parents, right? Yes. 
Right. Because you do get that, right? I mean, you do get families that they want something for the child, but that's their why, not the child's why. My husband and I may have done that with piano lessons with our son. <laughs> and it, and I just formally want to apologize to Dr. Chris Foley, who was my son's piano teacher and my son made his life a living hell right but the why it, you know he didn't want to that he's not that's not his passion he's not interested right so this you were going to say one more thing I was going to say that one other thing about laziness to understand about quote laziness is that often often folks who have executive function differences or who um uh aren't necessarily um uh, or who are neurodivergent, um, often folks who who have difficulties starting a task um, or who are overwhelmed by where do I start this task, often those are the folks who look lazy because they're overwhelmed and they or they look like procrastinators, you know, um, and and it and it doesn't have to do. And this is the the one of the main. Um, tenants of Dr. Price's work as well is that this doesn't have to do with literally not, you know, not being, not just not being motivated. It has so much more to do with the way the brain works and the way that if I can't figure out what the first step in the task is, then I'm not going to be able to actually start the task. And then I'm going to look lazy because I'm so overwhelmed um, I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to actually start the task. So again, coming to practicing or learning a song or something along those lines, those things can all look, that can look like laziness when in fact it's the, the brain not being able to literally start the task. So that, that when we start to see that, again, that comes down to why we see that a student is actually motivated and they do want to, they do want to practice, for example, or they do want to learn a song or they do want to do this, do specific things. They want to learn things. And when they aren't doing that, then that can come back to how are we working with that student, you know, rather and and how explicit can we be in terms of um, creative ways to, to, to sort of start the process for them? And, and how explicit can we be in terms of here's the very first step? So we bring that out for them. Nice. That's such a great tip. Shannon, I love these segments. We are talking about debunking the myths and the absolutes in our voice pedagogy industry. Now, next week, we are talking about a, a really sticky one. Oh, I'm going to say it. We're going to be talking about whether or not you have to have a degree in voice to be a teacher. Ooh, and Shannon's got this big smile on her face and she's nodding. And so it's going to be a good one. So we're, we're going we're gonna to wrap up this series with the big question. Do you have to have a formal degree in voice pedagogy to be an amazing teacher? Shannon, I'll see you next time on the podcast. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. To Kenya Battle is not only our technology expert here at the Full Voice Podcast, but she does a lot of work with teachers, helping them to discover their whys. And today, to Kenya's helping us to discover our I am statements. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend, my colleague, my technology expert, to Kenya Battle. How are you? 
I am doing mighty fine, mighty fine. How about yourself? I'm good now, I have to say. I'm looking and I see at this big, sunny, sunny window. You're in Texas. So uh, how's the weather in Texas? It feels like the ocean is on your back as soon as you step outside the door. It's just hot and humid. And it's just like, why? Why, Lord? It's just just hot. (laughs) It is so hot. It's just hot all the time. And we're actually cooler than normal. Oh, my goodness. Uh, You know, one of the things I love, I have experts from all over the world, and I always like to check in. And uh, uh, but I can see from the window behind you that it is sunny and warm. I'm thrilled that you're here. I always love talking to you. You have a passion and an appreciation for technology and apps and platforms, and you help others to make sense of them, to make them work. And I love the way you communicate all of this. Uh, but today we're talking about, we're talking about something that, that I don't think a lot of teachers think about enough, which is, well, you call it the I am statement. Let's dive into that. Oh, sure. That I am statement is what lays the foundation for who it is that you serve and how you can help them reach their goals. So an I am statement, my I am statement is I am to Kenya Battle, the chief troublemaker. I am the, the chief troublemaker at Kenya's Keys, where we provide personalized piano and vocal instruction designed to help you unleash your inner superstar. That's me communicating to my ideal client that if you're looking for voice lessons and piano lessons, I teach that. Mm-hmm. If you want to feel like a superstar, I can help you do that too. Nice. I love that. And I love how you've chosen, you've crafted using some very specific words. And I think, um, I think that one of the things I've learned over the years of learning about copywriting and marketing is that language is a currency and you could change, like look at your, look at your copy and just changing one or two words can, can, uh, you know, bring to life or, or really connect with a certain person. I gotta say the thesaurus is my best friend. <gasps> I'm always looking like, what's another way to say, um, what's another way to say happy? What's another way to say fun, for example? Mm -hmm. Because these are the ways that you want your students to feel like, oh, I'm happy. After I've had a lesson, I'm happy. So it's really based in emotions. Feeling like a superstar can mean different things to different people. Yeah. So it's like I'm ca- I'm capturing that feeling without being ex- explicitly specific about mm. what it is that makes you a superstar because it's going to be different for every student. How and so ever when I say that I provide personalized that mm. word personalized yeah. helps them feel like I'm I'm really t- I'm going to help you you not the you plural I'm going to help you singular mm-hmm. and we all who doesn't want to feel like a superstar yeah. Well, and, and I, 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 that is one of the things, right? Everybody is looking for that attention, right? Parents are looking for, is this going to be a good fit for my child? You know, and, and 
like everything from the design of our website to the social media posts that we put, like everything that we put out there kind of creates an energy and, you know, even a picture is worth a thousand words. But, um, that I am statement, I guess, I guess, and in, in previous days it would have been called the elevator pitch but since covid's a thing where nobody wants to get into elevators anymore so now we need just to have an i am statement <laughs> these i am statements are powerful mm-hmm. they are a declaration mm-hmm. they are a sifting of sorts this is you eliminating as well mm-hmm. i didn't say i am uh, i provide personalized um clarinet lessons or Mm -hmm. I provide personalized French horn lessons, I'm specifically talking to the person who's looking for voice lessons and piano lessons. Right. Now, there are other instruments that I teach. I don't really advertise Mm. that I teach those instruments because that's not my focus. I don't want that to be Mm. where the bulk of my instruction lies. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, yes, I do teach drumming. Yes, I may teach a little violin here and there, but oh I'm gosh. not going to tell everybody that because that's right. not where I want my focus to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to really check in with yourself. What is it that you want your focus to be? Uh, I Could you also, if you wanted to be a, a studio that really sp- specifies like a certain age, like a demographic, that needs to be in your I am statement. It really does. You need to kind of tell people again who you are who you serve and how you can help them Mm. i who who are you now you make it sound easy because well your website is keyofeasy.com but you make this sound so easy but i know that this is challenging how do you help teachers that maybe they're just getting started out or maybe they're realizing that they've attracted the wrong clientele and they're trying to kind of uh, maybe streamline their offerings. How do you help teachers to really craft their, their I am statement that might be struggling? I listen. That's the first thing I do is I listen. Mm-hmm. I listen. So I've been able to help several teachers find their I am statement. So we held an I am workshop and Shirley's is, I am the super connector soprano pianist who is thrilled to bring music to new audiences through collaboration. That that tells you who she is, who she serves and how she helps. Right, I like that. Let's see, here is, I want you you to look at the transformation of Brandy's I am statement. So in the beginning she started with, I am a creative who serves preschoolers, young and adult beginner musicians, providing fun and engaging piano lessons that build their confidence, encourage self-expression, and teach life lessons through learning the instrument. That's where she started. Okay. That is a mouthful. Mm. It does say who she helps, who she serves, and the benefits of working with her. And this is the statement that that I helped her craft in the end. I am Brandy, the confidence creator who connects little ones to life lessons through music expression. Brilliant. Oh, see, see that it's, we have to take the time to really, really dive into that statement. I love that. Do you have another one? I got another one. Okay. All right. All right. So Craig said, 
I'm Craig, a music educator and encourager, this is where he started, who helps his students learn the joys and disciplines of making music that will last a lifetime and transfer over to any other life endeavor. Well, that's not bad. Now, that's okay. not, it's that's not, not bad, bad at all. I, I like, do like that. All right. So this is what we worked up for him. This is what I came up with. I'm Craig, the mighty music motivator who uncovers the joy of discovery for lifelong learners of music making. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. What a, you know, as a parent, that gets me excited. Like if I had, if I had a a younger child that wasn't obsessed with baseball and perhaps they wanted to do music, (laughs) that would be like, I would want to reach out to him for sure. I just really listened to what people are saying to me at first. I think I just have this knack for narrow, narrowing it down, Mm -hmm. like this little tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. It's like I hear what people are trying to tell me. And I, I I know how to make it real succinct and to the point. I think that's so important, and and I know that I know that as creatives, we often want to give everyone our detailed life story, but we are we are trying also to be respectful of people's time and attention, and we really only have. A few seconds, like the, people need it quick, short, bite-sized pieces of information uh, given to them or they're gone, right? And I think that's one of the challenges as teachers. We want to share all the information all the time and we overwhelm, right? We just, we barf everything out and this is my life. This is my passion and I would like to be your teacher. But we need to, we need to just remember that, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, I I want to thank you for sharing this. This is so helpful. And and I think that that crafting that I am statement or elevator pitch or, you know, that mission statement is so important. Um, would you say that it would be good practice to perhaps reevaluate that statement, say at the end of a term or or as you as you grow as a teacher? My I am statement has evolved continuously. If you ask me what it is five months from now, it may be something different. Always check in with yourself. You may not always want to teach specifically little kids. You may only want to focus on adults. You may teach a different instrument that you want to focus on. It's a, it's a constant evolution just as we are as people. Oh, I like that. So as you, as you see, you know, you see your, your studio growing or maybe you're, you know, you're winding down your studio and you need less students like that. You would reevaluate the I am statement and then update it accordingly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm telling you, there's this freedom that comes about when you finally nail that I am statement. When you nail it, you know, because the universe will definitely reflect what you're putting out. It's if if I said that this is what I am, then that's what I'm going to attract. I love it. I love it. 
Oh my goodness. Takenya, you are so helpful. Thank you so much. Um, I hope this inspires all my listeners to, to, uh, kind of look at what their I am statement is. Now, if somebody is looking for some assistance, uh, where can they find and follow you? And I know you offer, um, you offer some help with this specific topic as well. Where can they find this? Absolutely. You can always find me at Kenya's keys across social media. You can find me at kenyaskeys.com. You can also find me at keyofeasy.com. And to all your listeners, I am very much willing to schedule a free one-on-one phone call about that I am statement. Oh, to Kenya, that is so generous. I'm going to put your information, um, but I hope that uh, I hope that somebody, I hope my listeners will take that advantage of that and and uh, work with you because I can I see how powerful it could be. As always, you are a gifted, wonderful, passionate human being. I love talking to you, and we will have you back on the podcast. Looking forward to it. You know that student in your studio who just doesn't seem to pick up on your instruction? You give them information and you give them directions, but nothing seems to change. And you know that there's a disconnect. Something's not getting through. Well, I've brought my good friend, Steve Farrell, yoga and meditation teacher, and that is our conversation today. How to help those students who are struggling to follow our cues. Welcome back to the Full Voice Podcast, my friend, and oh my gosh, it's my my listeners can't see you, I can see you. It's so nice to see you and to talk to you today, Steve Farrell. It's so good to be back and to see you, Nikki. I miss you very much. I, I miss you too, and prior to hitting record, Steve just told me that some of his yoga classes are still online, and I my heart just like exploded. Into, into unicorns and and fuzzy things. <laughs> um, Steve, uh, for my listeners that are new, Steve is uh, a yoga meditation teacher, also a therapeutic counselor. But Steve is also a musician. So Steve has uh, Steve uh, is a drummer. You studied jazz, amongst many other things. Um, so it's always a wonderful conversation. We have the mindfulness, we have the music, and it all comes together. Yeah. And for me, it's funny, like people, people that don't know that I'm a musician, everybody in yoga classes knows that I'm a musician because I talk about music mm-hmm. all the time, or I might even give people like paradiddles to do. As, like, you do. That's very, that's very common. Um, but there's so many parallels. Like that's the great thing. Is that there's oh, so many parallels between like philosophy and meditation, mindfulness, music. Like it's mm-hmm. all, there's so much in there that's yeah. like, I like to say cross currents. There's so, so many things coming together there. Mm. Right? Like some of the stuff that I teach in my mindfulness workshops is directly from stuff that I learned in school. Well, I know that uh, I have a, a many colleagues who uh, are incorporating mindfulness, breathing techniques, meditation mm-hmm. in their teaching studios as part of warm up, part of like teaching the whole singer, the whole musician, and so these are yeah. these conversations are are so wonderful, and I've certainly taken so much from you back to my teaching studio. So uh, on Thursdays, Steve had this amazing hot yin yang class and then i would teach on <laughs> thursdays and i think my thursday students had a much more uh centered t- 
teacher. <laughs> yeah, they got a post yoga, Nikki. <laughs> they got post yoga. Monday and Tuesday students, they got something else. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well just walk in and be like, I'm so sorry, guys, but I haven't done. I haven't done my, I didn't do my meditation and you're in for it. (laughs) (laughs) Today I wanted, and this is, this is a very selfish question because I run up against this all the time. So, uh, I, I want to know, uh, we're talking about when we give instructions to students and they're not, they're not picking up on the cues. So you're trying to, you're trying to make some changes, direct, lead them in a direction, but the student's not responding. Now, is that, Mm -hmm. that's something that happens for you in a yoga class or all the time, right? Like everywhere. I'm like in, in the yoga room, in the meditation hall, in the therapy room, Mm -hmm. like it happens everywhere. Right. Um, Yeah. It's a very, it's a very common thing. So when you are working with, let's say with a group and you notice that Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's one or two or five people that are not where you would like them to be, what's your approach? How do you, how do you approach this? Yeah. So one thing, one thing that I'll do is sort of look at whether or not it's an attention thing or an interest thing, Mm. or whether it's a language thing. So like, here's an example from my own life, let's say with my kids where, and I'm sure like most parents can attest to this. Like, let's say your kids are watching TV. And uh, for us, our living room is right off of our kitchen. So they're sitting on the couch, they're watching the television. And I say my son's name a few times, I'm trying to get his attention. And he doesn't respond to me because he's wrapped up in like the television show that he's watching right now. It's, um, Sherman and Peabody. He's really into Sherman and Peabody, which I think is super cool because we talked about how that's actually a really old show. Right. Um, and they re- they remade it and now there's like a movie, um, but it's a really cool show. So he's like vegging out on Sherman and Peabody. And <laughs> what I'll do or what my wife and I will do is like, we know what he's into. So we'll just be like, we'll say his name a few times. And if it doesn't work, we'll be like, Pokemon. Right. Or we'll be like, <laughs> Bakugan. Right? Or like, for my daughter it's like chocolate and they're like oh what oh what (laughs) so it's like like and i think that that's a really wonderful strategy because like for parents especially like let's say in that scenario like you keep saying their name and you want them to respond like there's a deep desire inside of us for whether it's our kids or our students or um like my clients to respond or at least to to let you know that they know that you're talking to them or that they like, there's some sort of recognition there. Um, And I think that, and I've definitely been guilty of this in the past of just like saying his name or her name and then just getting louder and louder and louder and louder until the point that I'm yelling the name. And then all of a sudden, like they'll, they'll listen after a while because it's so loud. They can't not. Um, but then all of a sudden, like I'll come across as like the mean guy or the dad that yells all the time. And we've, we've talked to them about like, well, it's cause you didn't hear me the first seven times when I was like, Hey, here, over here, trying to get your attention. And then I have to yell just to basically get your attention. So that's one thing that I like about, like, let's say if they're really in the zone on something else that we can use other than their name, we can use notice things that they're into that are going to pull them out of that sort of like zone or trance that they're in. Um, but yeah, there's a few different ways to go about it. Like if, 
if a kid isn't interested or a client isn't interested in what's being taught, or I think this is really important, how it's being taught. Because sometimes that's not always the case of like, they're not interested in what's being taught, but they're just not interested in how it's being taught. Then we have to flip the script and, and figure out ways to be more engaging. So like, let's say for me, I, I do counseling with kids. And I think one of the really great things about me being a counselor for kids is, or let's say our generation, um, is that we got to be kids for longer. We got to play a lot more. Um, like, I don't know about your husband, but like, was he into video games when he was a kid and stuff like that? Yeah. So same with me. And I know that like pretty much every kid that I see um, is also into video games. Like even like, I don't want to like gender stereotype, but more so guys, like the boys are into the video games, the girls, not as much, but even the girls that play video games, I'm like, Oh, cause my daughter plays. And I'll be like, Oh, have you played this game before or that game before? And it becomes a really wonderful way for me to be able to engage in my students or my clients because I can talk about the things that they're interested in, especially if it's kids. Like I can, um, like what's the song that both of them are into right now? Dan- do you know Dance Monkey? Yeah, That song? Uh-huh. Dance for me, dance for me, dance for me one more time. And I've, it's the weird thing is I've actually found myself like liking that song and listening to it by myself, which is a little bit embarrassing to say, but that's okay. Um, but being able to take interest in what they're interested in, and especially as a teacher, I don't think it's just about teaching. I think it's about relationship and getting to know like what our students are into. And that's the way primarily that I engage with anybody that I work with, whether I'm talking about like a yoga student or I'm talking about, um, my kids or like my therapy clients is being able to know what they're interested in so that I can engage with them more fully, more easily, pull them out of like these little sort of like bubbles that they can get themselves into. Um, Or even just being able to, like if somebody's not interested in what we're doing, well, can I teach the same thing, but do it differently? Mm. Like, like, does that make sense? It does completely. Sure. One of the things I noticed and I appreciated in your classes is that you, you had a lovely way you would demonstrate, you know, at times you, so you'd Mm -hmm. be at the front of the class demonstrating. And then there were times where you would step away and be, be giving like verbal cues. Mm -hmm. And, and so I mean, I guess that's going to like different type of learning styles, right? Like some people are visual, they need to see it. Some people are more auditory and they would like to hear it. And then mm-hmm. I, I think, well, I mean, in a yoga class, you know, you're, you're making your body do it. Yeah. So, yeah. so do you, do you, once you kind of get started in your classes, are you, are you looking for like different ways to do, to to dive into like learning styles or? Yeah. And one thing that I might even say, you might've heard me say this in a class before. It's like, yeah, there are definite learning styles. And I'm going to say like, that's either a preference or a tendency, but I think that it's good for us to be able to practice all styles of learning. So I might even say in a yoga class, like you might be really good at visual learning but you can still get better at auditory learning. Like you can still get better at hearing like 
okay, this is what they're saying. This is what they're asking me to do to process that, process that for a moment and say like, okay, this is, this is how I'm going to approach that. Um, like for me, I'm a very visual and kinesthetic learner. I, I watch and I do, and that's primarily how I learn. I haven't learned well via auditory learning or by reading. Like that, would, that was always hard for me in school was like reading something and then trying to figure out what that meant as far as like doing a math problem or, or now like reading something and then trying to translate that into like a movement, like reading about a movement pattern. And so I've gotten better at that simply because I've practiced it. And so that's one thing that I like to do, especially in my yoga classes, is challenge the students to kind of move out of their comfort zone a little bit. Like, you're really good at this. Keep doing that. But let's put a little bit more of your energy over here into some of the stuff that you're not so good at. Like, can I explain a movement to you? And then don't just try to do it right away, but like, think about it. Like, think about the words that I said and then try to put that into a movement. And know that you're probably going to get it wrong at some point. And like, and that's one of the things that we really learn these days about, like, thank goodness for neuroscience. Um, but like, that's, that's primarily how learning and neuroplasticity happens, especially in kids is reaches and failures and reaches and failures. And then when they get a little bit of it right, there's a dopamine release and that's the sort of reward slash motivation neurochemical to keep going. Oh, I got it sort of right. I'm going to keep going. Right. Um, and I, I think it's also cool. Like just a little side note, like I'm learning a lot more about like neuromodulators and neurochemicals and how they work for, especially for my therapy clients. Like I want to know how dopamine is so involved in something like addiction. And so, cause then I can leverage that. Like I can leverage how we do our therapy to like give them little rewards, ask them to move out of their comfort zone, make sure that they get the, the term these days is dopamine lollipops. Like there's a little dopamine lollipop, but it's, it's one of those things where we say sometimes that it's okay to fail and it's okay to make a mistake, but then we don't actually embody that when it comes time to the mis- for the mistake to be made or the mistake has been made. Um, but I think that it's good for anybody who has a particular learning style to practice the other learning styles. Because you're, it's like life's not always going to be sunshine and lollipops in a little bubble where you always learn how you want to learn. Like the good thing is, is like we can do that more these days. We can cater to more our preferences via, let's say, like the internet and stuff like that or just technology. Um, but I think it's good for people to practice learning in different ways especially as we get older right like the the old phrase like you can't teach an old dog new tricks is completely false it's just you can't teach an old dog new tricks quickly right you got to take your time and like be slow and and very modular about it so when you are seeing a student and you're you recognize that maybe the cues or the language, so they are interested, they are paying attention, but your instruction isn't hitting the mark. How do you address yeah. that? Yeah, so is it okay if I address that with a little bit of an anecdote first? Absolutely, okay? yes. Okay, cool. Because um, I like anecdotes and metaphors. That's kind of like, because I'm philosophy and musician. Wait, <laughs> is, do you have a koan for this? No, I don't. Okay, because those are cool. <laughs> Zen koans are pretty cool. They, they are, are really, cool. 
really nice ways to do. Um, my favorite Zen koan is before enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. And after enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. I love that like, one. That's always, that one's my favorite. Yeah. But nothing really changes. It's just, you know, you just keep doing the same stuff even once you've been enlightened. One of my um, favorite books, sorry for a little aside yeah, here. One of my favorite books was, was it, um, uh, after enlightenment, the laundry, like the, after the ecstasy, the laundry, right there. It yeah, is. Jack Cornfield. Jack, Jack Cornfield. Cornfield. That was a book. great yeah. book. So, yeah. all right. So continue. Sorry. I, I got off on yeah, a tangent so, there. Yeah. So the anecdote is like, um, something that I learned in some yoga therapy trainings with a beautiful teacher. Her name is Susie Haley. If anybody wants to check her out, she's from Alberta, I believe. Um, but one of the things that she would say, and this was sort of my first real introduction to this is because a lot of the times in, let's say like a yoga class, you're working off of a lot of stock cues, whether it's like, whether you're working from a style that's kind of scripted, like a moksha or a bikram, like that's very scripted. Um, or whether you just have like the language that you like to use, right? Because I can very easily get stuck in the language that I prefer. And one of the things that I learned from her was that not all of that language is going to hit everybody. And it's nice when it does. And the more clear and concise you can be with your language, the easier it is for your audience to pick up on what it is that you're trying to say. Um, but she would say that because not every cue is going to land on every body, you have to get better at cueing of taking the same idea and putting it into different or putting it into a different place. For instance, I had a client once who we were working, she had back pain. She had some, the, the acronym these days is LBP. She had some generalized low back pain. And it's been, it's been there for a long time. And so we were doing some movement. And one of the movements that I was trying to teach her, she just was not getting. And I was like, okay, no, here. And then I would ask like, is it okay if I put my hand on you so that you can get like uh, more sensory feedback about what it is that I would like you to do. And that didn't work. Like all of my cueing that I was using was failing, like putting my hand for proprioception fail. And so one of the things, so I stepped back and I was like, what's not happening here that I would like to happen. I say, she's not understanding. And this was happening in session. I said, I actually said to her, I was like, can you just give me a moment? I just want to step back. You just be there, do whatever you need to do. Like if you want to breathe, you just breathe. So I stepped back for a moment and I actually thought about it. And then I had this realization that all of the cueing that I was giving her was backside body cueing. Like I was asking her to do stuff with her back. And for whatever reason, she was not deeply connected to the backside of her body. Right. And so what I did was I started cueing the front side, like everything that I was doing was cueing front side stuff. So I would talk about like her chest or her belly or her front ribs or the fronts of her shoulders or her face. And as soon as I switched up my language from back body cueing to front body cueing, she got it. And it was, but like what I love about that story was not about that. I, she got eventually got it. Like, like, that's great that she eventually got it. What I love about that story for myself is that I had to step back and be like, what am I saying that's not landing on her? Because I even tried a bunch of different things. Like, with her, I tried a bunch of different cues. All Again, all backside cues. And I, like, I tried the hands, and I'm like, what, what's not being said here that she's going to grasp? 
And so the thing that I like about that is I actually had to question for a moment how I was teaching, not how they were responding. Right. So it wasn't on them. It was more on me and how I had to change up what I was doing so that I could get a response. I want to thank you for bringing that up because it's quite often we get frustrated with the student like yeah. they are doing something wrong or they're not getting it or or they're not making the connection. But it's mm -hmm. it's it's the teacher that has to stop and reflect and go, how am I doing this? And how can I do it differently? That's hard too, especially, it especially is. if you have like that outlier, like this, that my, my instruction works for you and you and you and you, but oh, well, then you must be the problem because it works for everybody <laughs> yeah, else. And that's, and that's the problem sometimes is we make the student the problem. And, and instead of like looking at like taking the mirror and turning it back on ourselves, right? Instead, we project our frustrations onto our students <laughs> instead of actually like questioning, well, what may I be? Like, I don't like to use the word wrong, but what am I doing inefficiently? Like, maybe I could be more efficient in how I'm queuing or what I'm queuing so that I can hit those people that aren't getting it as easily. When you have those moments where you've made the connection, do you celebrate them or do you just kind of you know, keep it low key, like celebrate, yeah. celebrate it. Cause, cause again, that's going to be, it's going to be that dopamine lollipop for a lot of people. It's going to be, and like one of the ways or like the ways that we used to think about, like, let's say dopamine used to be like, Oh, it's the reward, like neurochemical or neuromodulator. And like, I like how, and if anybody isn't, like already on board with uh, the Huberman Lab podcast, you should really check it out. It's fantastic. Um, it's all like science evidence-based tools for all sorts of stuff, um, for learning, for like de-stressing. Like, uh, but now uh, Andrew Huberman is is the the host of the podcast. He's a really wonderful um, individual. He has the, I think he's the head of ophthalmology and neurobiology at Stanford. He works at Stanford and he's a really smart guy, but very like his podcasts are very accessible. Super smart guy, explains things really well. Um, but what he was talking about in one of his podcasts or multiple podcasts is how dopamine is now more seen as a motivation neurochemical or neuromodulator. It's not really about the reward. The reward is nice, makes you feel good. But what that cues to the brain is to try again to get that. So it becomes more of a motivational neuromodulator as opposed to um, a reward neuromodulator, which I, I really like that idea. So yeah, celebrate, like the, celebrate those little wins sometimes. Uh, like, and, and even like what I'll do, whether it's with a, like a yoga student or like somebody gets something in a meditation practice, they really have like a realization or an understanding or in the therapy room, I, ask the student, I'm like, you got it. That was brilliant. Do you recognize that? Like, do you, like, are you grasping the fact that you just got that? Like really point it out, highlight it, like hit it with a laser pointer. Like, yes, that's what you did there. And we might not always be able to do that. Like every time, right. As somebody who used to play competitive darts, which is always funny to say, like good luck hitting the bullseye every time, right? And it's like, it's it's the really, really good players that can hit like the triple 20, triple 20, triple 20, but they can't do it every time. 
Like they do it most times, but not every time. And so like, I like the idea of like celebrating these little wins because the little wins, if gone unnoticed, don't motivate us to do it again. Right. It's gone unnoticed. And like, if we talk about like the mindfulness stuff, the mindfulness stuff is really all about noticing like, Oh, you just did that. And we might even like, especially for therapy clients, what I'll try to then do is highlight the process that we went through. Like, can you see what led you to getting that? Like, let's backtrack a little bit. Like let's do a little visualization or backtrack and say like, this is what came first. And then we did this and then we did this and then you got it. And sometimes it can be a matter of like, they'll just get it again and again and again. Right. Or sometimes it's a matter of trying to, let's say like recreate that sequence, like do this first, then we'll do this. And then like, let's see if you get it. And that's, I think that's so important too, because if you want someone to take that information that you've given them and go home and try to recreate that, if there was no, if there was no celebration or if there was no victory dance, where's the motivation to go home and do something that made you feel meh, right? Yeah. Or if there was no recognition of how like it was set up and then executed that got the result that you want, how are you going to practice that at home if you don't actually know how you got there in the first place? Just like, well, I kind of know how I got there, but it's really just a shot in the dark. And so especially with like my therapy clients, like, here's what we did. And when I give them homework, I'm like, here's what I want you to try to do as like, as much as you can is like, go through the sequence. And you might, I'll say to them, you might even find that you don't have to hit every step. Let's say there was five steps to get to that result when we did it in session. And then the more that they do it, they might even find that they get to skip a couple steps, right? Like you do one, two, and oh, you're already there. Or like, go through those five steps again and again and again so that you get better at like moving through that process. Right. As opposed to like, Oh, you did it. Congratulations. See you later. Like go try to do whatever it was that you just did at home by yourself with no instruction. Right. Right. Oh, so helpful. Steve, I really appreciate your, your expertise on this and sharing, you know, from a movement and a meditation and also from a therapy perspective. I think all of this applies to anybody working with others and trying to guide them. And I, and I want to thank you for this. Um, how can people find and follow you? Uh, I am on Instagram. And that would be uh, at move well, feel good, all one word. Um, if anybody wants to contact me through email, I'm at stevefarrellcounseling at gmail.com. That would be S-T-E-V-E-F-E-R-R-E-L-L-C-O-U-N-S-E-L-L-I-N-G at gmail. <laughs> I will put links to all of your contacts in the show notes, just in case. Uh, I also but, really love spelling. So like right? I, I, was, I make jokes that if I stop teaching yoga or being a therapist, I'm going to hit the competitive spelling bee like, circuit. <laughs> you know, there's a brilliant musical, the, uh, I think it's the 23rd annual Putnam County Spelling Bee and and the actual the actual theater was turned into a school gym. And the kids That's would cool. and they would have to get up and sing their little songs about spelling in their lives. It's so very spelling. powerful. <laughs> Anyhow, um I can just see you there's some characters in there that you you could you could fit. So 
Um, we're going to have you, <laughs> sorry, went on a tangent there. Uh, I, we're going to have you back. Uh, we have so many more wonderful conversations. And again, uh, thank you for your time and we'll uh, see you soon. So very welcome. It's always a pleasure, Nikki. A very special thank you to all our incredible guests today on episode 151. Jessica Baldwin, Shannon Coates, to Kenya Battle, and Steve Farrell. I want to thank all of these wonderful people for their time, their talent, and their passions, and for helping us become better teachers and have more teaching skills to bring into our studios. Friends, uh, if you have not visited our website, thefullvoice.com, I want you to go there. We have some fun seasonal freebies. You can go to our free resources page. You don't have to sign up. They're all there for you to download and enjoy today. And we have many seasonal holiday themed songs, studies, activities that can really help to keep the energy up as we move into the final weeks of 2021. I want to thank you for joining me and for listening and choosing the Full Voice Podcast. And as always, I am wishing you inspired teaching, happy singing, and happy holidays. Hang on. I'll mark that. I just wanted to stop for, um, I had a question and then it just left. <laughs> um, As questions do. Right. Uh, well, I try not to interrupt people, so I hold them in my brain, but my brain is like, ha ha ha. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Here we go.